compassion arises when we're willing to come close to suffering. Mm. That, that's the cause for compassion. And if we don't have that willingness, it's not going to arise because the compassion is in response to the suffering, you know, in, in the world and other people, even, even in ourselves. Hi, everyone. It's Raghu, and I'm back with Mind Rolling, and Noah is joining me uh, to hang out for an hour with Joseph Goldstein. Joseph, welcome. Thanks. Good to be with you both. Noah joins all Joseph Goldstein podcasts that I do over the last uh, 10 years. <laughs> it's my, my standing invite. Yeah. Great. Yeah, uh-huh. it is. It is. Um. Well, anyhow, this is quite a world we're in right now. We can't just uh, not even mention, you know, the uh, mm-hmm. severity, complexity, suffering that is going on in this world. And it, um, I think a good thing, I had something in mind that I think I mentioned mm-hmm. to you before that we certainly want to get into a little later. But uh, given the reality of what we're in on a day-to-day basis, there's, a, there's of course, the gigantic suffering that wars produce. And then there's suffering around the world with people who are engaging in, in, you know, either watching news or the internet or social media or whatever. And then having really, really strong reactions that create different emotional contexts, which are so difficult. And um, I'd like to just start with you. Maybe talk a little bit about... There's a way in which we empathize with what's going on, which is a lot different from generating compassion and compassionate action, whatever that may be. Can you talk about that empathy and compassion and how they really differ? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think empathy is in a way the first step you know, mm. towards compassion because uh, I think the empathy comes when we slow down enough uh, just to stop and feel what's going on, you know, whether it's uh, through personal contact or through the media. Uh, but often we're just so busy in our lives, rushing through our lives, we may hear it on a kind of conceptual level, but sometimes it doesn't really enter into us, you know, on our heart level. Uh, and I think that happens when we just stop a little bit in quiet quiet down a little bit and so it really goes in Uh, and we can really feel you know what at least to some extent what other people may be going through but empathy is still just the forerunner to compassion in that and Thich Nhat Hanh expressed it really well Mm. he said compassion is a verb you know and so and and one of my favorite expressions of that actually was the title of a book by Ramdas and Paul Gorman, you know, in the old days, how can I help? Yeah. Uh, and to me, that, that question, I love that title because it's kind of landed inside as a, a life, uh, a lifelong mantra, 
Mm-hmm. You know, well, a mantra to live by. How can I help in whatever the situation may be? And just to hold the question, it's not always that an answer uh, will be obvious, you know, because sometimes in some situations, uh, it's not clear what we can do to help. But even in those situations where, you know, in the world uh, where it just seems so complex, you know, and it's really hard to disentangle it all. The how can I help? We can always turn that question uh, towards ourselves, especially when we're caught up in a lot of reactivity. Uh, So how can I help my own mind come to a place of some peace? You know, and because it's really, I think, out of that some degree of peace and non-reactivity, that there may be some clarity in terms of what we can actually do, you know, in the world and how we can help. If we're caught up just in our own in our own mental suffering uh, or reactions, it's very hard to see clearly, uh, and it, it can get really confusing. Um, so I think I'm just understanding that empathy is the doorway to compassion. You know, we stop and we feel what's going on to some extent, but then holding that question, uh, which will move us one way or another, whether internally or externally, to respond to that question. Okay, in this situation, what can I do? Mm. Is there some way of helping? Um, yeah, and I think that's that becomes the seed then you know, of some action. Yeah, yeah. And uh, of course, Ramdas would say all the time, you got to fix your heart before you can even yeah. think of helping anybody. Yeah. And, uh, but then he used to say also, but it's not a matter of, you You know, go to a cave for 20 years and then see that you'll get fixed up. And then it's it's an action that takes place internally and externally on a day-to-day basis. And Yeah, except just to put in a plug for the cave. it could be going to a cave for 20 years you know sometimes i think of uh the buddha in his past lives Mm. you know how many lifetimes did he spend in a cave and sometimes i just imagine you know he's off in a cave and his parents complaining go get a job (laughs) do something with your life but meanwhile we're here talking because of what he did sitting in the cave yeah Okay. Yeah. So, so we don't, we don't want to have a narrow slice of yeah. what compassionate action means. Yeah. Yeah. I think we want to hold it in the biggest possible frame. Mm, yeah. Um, I know you know uh, you know who Tsokni Rinpoche is. Noah, yeah. do you know who Tsokni Rinpoche is? The name sounds familiar. Yeah, he's been mm. a great teacher for well, Sharon mm. uh, is yeah. really Sharon Salzberg. So. Um, I, I just want to read something. He told a story. Mm-hmm. It's so it's so great. It so emblemizes us, especially in in, in the West. Um, he talked about something he called um, California compassion. <laughs> so, you know. Um, so he tells the story. A spiritual man living in California was getting ready for bed. 
He lit some incense and did a few minutes of, quote-unquote, compassion meditation before climbing under his soft organic sheets. <laughs> he wanted to feel fresh and look great the next morning at work, so he was looking forward to a good, restful sleep, but the phone rang. A friend was feeling really sick and asked the, if the man could take her to the hospital. He took a deep breath. Part of him wanted to be the kind of person who did that, but he also really wanted to sleep well and feel fresh in the morning. The desire for good rest won, and he apologized in a soothing voice, and talking so great, and said he couldn't do it. But he really hoped she found someone to take her, really hoped she felt better. When the phone call ended, he crawled back under his sheets and tried to go to sleep. But feelings of guilt kept coming up and he tossed and turned for a while. And he thought to himself, maybe I should have helped her. I would want my friends to help me if I was sick. I guess I could go there now and see if she is okay. But he still didn't want to get dressed, drive out in the night and deal with the bright lights of the hospital. After a while, the guilty and conflicted feelings got so strong that he got up, put on his soft organic robe, and went back to his cozy meditation cushion. He breathed deeply in and sending his friend compassion in and out, sending his, fr his friend compassion and healing energy. After a while, he felt better and went and fell back to sleep. While the breathing practice and his prayers could seem compassionate, his intention was to pacify his own guilty feelings and be able to sleep. His motivation was about his own well-being. That is the practice of California compassion. And that, that is, uh, I mean, that's so, that's, that's just a common occurrence. I would say on behalf of not only in of, California, not only in California, <laughs> no, absolutely not. But, but the way in, you know, maybe you can speak to the way, you know, these kinds of motivations that come, I'm going to, I'm going to do a little, uh, ad for myself. Duncan Trussell and I just put out an audio book, The Movie of Me to the Movie of We. It was Krishnadas' thing that he tells in his, uh, in his talks and chants and so on about how fixated we are on our own selves 24-7. You know, we're the, we're the protagonist and the writer and the producer and the director and we even write our own reviews which generally make us feel bad. <laughs> so we just did that and put it out and, you know, that... This just, to me, speaks to the way in which we are blind to our motivations and the way in which that we, uh, as Sokni talks about it later, uh, there's no willingness whatsoever to suffer. You know, in the East, it's amazing. Uh, like when I go to India, the way that people can handle suffering and the way I can't on a physical plane level is extraordinary the way that we are brought up to completely avoid that. Yeah, maybe speak to that, uh, the way we avoid that and, and our motivations which carry us into our soft, organic sheets. Uh, well, there's a lot in what you just said. and yeah. Actually, as you were speaking, I had a, a few different trains of thought. Um, sure. So, a couple of things. One is understanding um, one of the causes for compassion to arise. So people may hold compassion as a value and maybe 
you know, sometimes or even often may feel it and act on it, uh, but often not. And one of the key understandings which can help frame our motivations and then what we actually do, whether we act on them or not, is the understanding that compassion arises when we're willing to come close to suffering. Mm. That, that's the cause for compassion. And if mm. we don't have that willingness, it's not going to arise because the compassion is in response to the suffering, you know, in in the world and other people, even, even in ourselves. Um, so I'll just share a little story. Um, this goes back to the India days. Um, you know, so I was there practicing in Bodh Gaya. And, you know, as you know, in India, there are lots of really pitiable dogs, you know, wild dogs, mange, starving, and they're, they're just wandering around. And I remember, you know, at times, so I'd be doing a lot of intensive meditation practice, but then in between times, in between retreats, would go into, um, you know, the village, chai shop for some sweets and chai. And of course, the dogs would be all around. And I just noticed in my own mind two different streams uh, that would come up at different times. One stream was, I just don't want to deal with this. <laughs> you know, I just want to enjoy my tea, the, the soft organic sheets. Yeah. <laughs> right? Just give me my sweets. My, I, I just want to relax a little bit. Mm. And so there would be that pushing away. At other times, I'd be there in a totally different frame of mind. And I would see these dogs, and I'd really let it in. I'd really look at them, you know, and see them. And, and just that, the willingness to see, the willingness to really look, it let the suffering in. And the immediate response was a compassionate feeling, wanting to do something. And so, you know, a small gesture, maybe, you know, giving a little bit of food or something. So it wasn't some huge act, but the difference in my frame of mind or the quality of my heart was completely different. One, it was close to the suffering, didn't want to come close. And the other was more open and really let the suffering in. So I think it was helpful for people who are at least at the stage of seeing compassion as a value. Right. So, and maybe not everybody has that feeling in the world. You know, there are lots of people who are not <laughs> not valuing that. But for those of us for whom it is a value, then understanding what's necessary for it to arise. Because then, when we're in these different situations that you described, whether you know it was the story from Sokni Rinpoche or my experience with the dogs, yeah. If we, if we hold it as a value and we understand what gives rise to it, so then if we have that understanding, there's, there's more likelihood that we will make the choice to let the suffering in, to come close to it. So I think it will affect our motivation, you know, and it will really... Um, Give us the understanding and the strength to actually do that. 
because there are a lot of tendencies in our minds, all of us, I think, unless, you know, unless we're a saint, <laughs> we have mixed motives, you know, and there are lots of times for one reason or another where we either keep the suffering out or we're apathetic towards it or we don't want to feel it along with those, you know, parts of the mind that understands its role in developing compassion and letting it in. So I think just that understanding gives us a frame for watching our own minds. And this leads to the second uh, strand of thought I had. And I really hadn't made the connection until you read that story, told the story. I think one... um, unappreciated aspect or component of compassion uh, is renunciation. Mm. You know, it's kind of the willingness to renounce our own, our own comfort in that situation or, you know, our own feeling of being, uh, trying to protect ourselves from it. So we can see it. And if, if we understand no, renunciation is part of it. It's like renunciation gives the gas, you know, mm. it gives the energy to actually respond and come close because we're, we're giving up a self-centered concern. Yeah. So that was the second, the second thread that came to mind. And the third one, Uh, is seeing the the essential interplay of or mutual support of meditation and compassionate action in the world. Mm. Because when we're practicing meditation, and this is especially true in insight practice, but I think in many, many forms of meditation, what we're learning in our meditative practice is to be open to the discomfort and suffering that's there. That's what mindfulness is about, right? And, you know, as we all know, in the beginning, it's hard. You know, when there's pain in the body, we don't like to feel it. You know, we push back and try to avoid it or distract ourselves or difficult emotions. But in our practice over time, there's a, there's a, a couple of phrases that I use both for myself and in teaching. Um, one of <laughs> one of them is, "It's okay to feel the unpleasant." Mm. Just just reminding ourselves because we're almost hardwired to I want what's pleasant and I don't want what's unpleasant, and most people would just well, of course that. <laughs> That's just normal. Mm. But in terms of developing and deepening our practice, it's not that. You know, it's the willingness to open both to what's pleasant and to what's unpleasant equally. Well, that that takes practice. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's and that that's exactly what meditation is about. Right. You know, so we settle into feeling the pain whether it's physical or mental, 
So the other phrase I use, which uh, I found to be very uh, helpful, and it's really born out of my own practice experience, uh, the phrase I use is, don't waste your suffering. (laughs) You know, so when we're suffering, we can either just drown in it or blame the situation or the other person for it. Mm. But that's a waste. That Then we're wasting our suffering. Mm. Not wasting it means, can I see what's causing the suffering? What's my relationship to the suffering? So we're actually learning from it ra- rather than just being overwhelmed by it. Yeah. Uh, so this is really the essence, in a way, of our meditative journey. So it's all these things, you know, it's the renunciation, it's coming, understanding that compassion comes from coming close to suffering Mm. and then not wasting it. Yeah, that's terrific. Jack uh, says something, I've always loved his mantra, which is something similar. I mean, in, in the case of like, when this guy, you know, he went back and got in his comfy bed and he didn't help this person, his friend, and then he started feeling guilty and that overwhelmed him and then he let that go, you know, this back and uh-huh. forth. And uh, so Jack's mantra, it's okay to be human. It's okay, you know, to sort of cut through the way in which we'll you know, be the judge and jury over our motivations and thoughts, which actually exacerbates it rather than helps it so yeah yeah it is okay isn't it <laughs> it's okay to well be i i would tweak it a little bit <laughs> okay i think the important point in that is that we're accepting of what's coming up you know and so all those moves for self-protection or whatever it is, you know, the the unwholesome parts of our minds. So kind of the key to being mindful is being accepting of the fact that it has arisen. So we're not judging it or reacting to it or drowning in it. But part of what mindfulness means, and this this goes right to the root of the Pali word for mindfulness, Mm. which is sati. So the root of that Pali word means remembering. Mm. And it's remembering two different things. One is, of course, remembering the present moment, right? So that's, that's what most people associate with being mindful. You know, we're mindful of what's actually there. But another meaning of it, and this is what ties mindfulness to ethics, part of what sati, mindfulness, means is remembering or calling to mind what is wholesome and what is unwholesome, what is skillful and what is not skillful, and having that discernment. So even as we understand it's okay to be human, But that doesn't mean just sinking in in an indiscriminate way. Oh, it doesn't matter whether it's it's wholesome or it's not wholesome. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, we want to, we want to, it's okay 
in the sense of being willing to be with it. So, so we're not we're not hiding from it, or we're not judging it. Yeah. But then having some wise discernment: is this something? Is it unskillful, and do I want to let go of this? Is it skillful? Do I want to cultivate it? So that step seems to me really important. Yeah. Very good point. And uh, I should say, by the way, we're talking about, uh, I'm referring to Jack, Jack Cornfield. Um, and I, I think I put, uh, I, I don't want any aspersions right. onto Jack. I put a certain kind of, right. a, you know, a, a little bit more it. of a, yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, you know, just even... You talk about well, what can we do? You know, when we were talking mm-hmm. earlier about compassionate action and so on, and uh, I think you know. Do you know who Jeff Walker is? He's a friend of Sharon's. Yes. Yeah, 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 lovely man, yeah. and he's been involved yeah. in all kinds of different research. Psychedelics is one of it, but also mm-hmm. in practices that um, are normally poo-pooed in relation to vibrational practices, energy. That, for instance, that when you say a prayer for someone, it is meaningful. It is mm-hmm. not nothing. Yes, you know, that kind of a thing. So he, yes. yeah. So he talked about that. So there are many different ways that we can, uh, you know, you don't have to be flying into a war zone, but that we can help. Right. Obviously, there's ways in which just getting together and and having a discussion on with opposite sides. Where we don't get lost in 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 our righteousness about you know what we believe is the truth about a situation, yeah. yeah. Just another another aspect of that is um, as we're looking at our own minds in the face, and especially what's happening now is a good example. You know the whole Israel Gaza yeah. disaster, you know, and so much suffering on, on all sides, and just in reading about it and hearing the news all the time and so many people are coming down on one side or another yeah. of it. And so I think that the challenge for us is to say, okay, is there a place where we can hold kind of a compassionate feeling to all sides? And I was thinking about this um, it actually came up, and we may have discussed this in the past sometime, but I, um, I was teaching, of course, right after 9-11, you know, and it was uh, near New York, and there were a lot of New Yorkers, and we were doing the loving-kindness meditation, mm. you know, and you go from sending it to a benefactor and a friend and a neutral person and then the enemy. Well when we got to sending loving kindness method to the enemy right after 9-11, particularly the New Yorkers, there was no way. May you be happy did not fly. (laughs) Yeah. You know, completely understandably. Yeah. So it, it really made me think and reflect, okay, the Buddha taught this as a universal value. How can that be expressed? What would be the expression that could include everybody, even for those on the suffering end of what happened? And I realized that there is a wish that would not exclude anyone. 
So for example, and I think this is very relevant to the situation today, who would we exclude from the wish, may you be free of hatred? Mm. May you be free of enmity? You know, because those are the causes of all the suffering. So I think there is a way if we find the right language that could embrace, even when we may be involved in one side or another, it would be a way of holding everyone, you know, in that feeling of compassion, compassion, compassion for the suffering. <laughs> Of beings. Yeah. Uh, so I think this is really important because it could take people, at least to some degree, out of a very uh, one sided yeah. view. Intractable. Of, yeah, of, of a very complex situation. Yeah. Noah, why don't you weigh in uh, into this or, um, or move it somewhere else or whatever? We always like to have Noah because he's representing next generation. You're our representative. <laughs> I don't know about that anymore. Um, oh, well. Well, you're me. the next. You might be, not be the last. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not the last. You're the next one in line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sure, sure. Um, just on the, the, the discussion on on empathy and compassion and suffering, I find myself just getting bogged down, being overwhelmed by all of it. Not not just the suffering, but the the empathy and the compassion that arises. It's just it's there's so much, right? So much suffering. So there's so much empathy and compassion kicking up from that. Uh, and I shut down to it a little bit. Um, how? How do we deal with that? How how do we get past that a little bit? Yeah. Well, especially these days with the uh, with the power of the media and all our devices, mm, which yeah. you know, it it's just it, it can be overwhelming. And so, yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong at all with taking a break from it. You know, and uh, I'm not saying take a break for months at a time, but it could be for hours at a time or a day at a time, you know, just to give the system a time to settle because it is very impactful. Uh, so in, in a way, it's realizing and and really become aware, becoming aware of our own capacity to hold the suffering, you know, and mm -hmm. that itself is a practice. And it's really no different in a way than, as I was mentioning before, the practice we do in meditation. You know, when, when I first started practice in India, you know, a few years ago, years ago, a million years ago, a million. <laughs> uh, I couldn't sit cross-legged at all. Uh, sitting was so painful. You know, so I could, five minutes sitting cross-legged, that was it. I just could not do it. So then I moved to a chair. But over time, gradually, the capacity to be with the physical pain, it just increased, you know. 
And the same thing is true of emotional pain. So I think understanding that that is actually part of our practice, you know, to hold it. And when it gets overwhelming in one way or another, when we're no longer in balance, it doesn't serve to stay right in that place of being unbalanced. It doesn't, it doesn't help anything and it doesn't help ourselves. So I think that understanding of that we open to it and then when we need to pull back some, we do and kind of re, re-energize ourselves mm. and, and then and come forward a bit and back. Uh, I think that's essential, actually. Otherwise, it's, it's just burnout. And if we yeah. keep opening to it, eventually that increases our capacity. To... Uh, definitely. Okay. If, if, if we open to it, but then retreat a little bit when it gets too much. And then going back. So I think it's that process which increases our capacity. Uh, and along with that, I think a really important balance for compassion, especially as it engages with the suffering in the world, is also equanimity. Mm. Because without equanimity, it can be overwhelming. And so then it's interesting to explore how we can strengthen the factor of equanimity along with the compassion. And uh, I've just found a few different ways that at least help me. One is, uh, I'm a great uh, reader of history. Uh-huh. A lot of my reading is, is about history. And having a historical perspective. So, for example, uh, sometimes some months ago, I finished one of these. I was listening on, you know, on Audible, a great books course on the rise and fall of empires before Alexander the Great. Mm. So this is going back, you know, thousands of years. And it was just so interesting because all of these empires, you know, successively, they arose, they were strong, they were dominant, and then conditions changed and they declined and a new power came in. And over thousands of years, this has been going on, you know. And somehow just to understand, well, this is part of, this is just part of our human history, right? And it just helps to, to, to have that bigger perspective. And sometimes I make it even larger kind of cosmic perspective. You know, are you familiar with, there's a famous piece that uh, the astronomer Carl Sagan wrote called The Blue Dot? Yeah. Yeah, you know, the, where he's just talking about what the Earth looks like from space and just... Mm-hmm. And he, he writes beautifully about that, how everything is arising just on this little blue dot. And again, it just enlarges it enlarges our perspective and scope or context of what's going on in the moment. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't it doesn't take away from the real suffering that's going on, but it enlarges our own minds, our own hearts, 
and puts it in a different perspective. And I find for me that there really is a quality of equanimity that comes, which then gives strength or balance to being able to respond to the suffering that's there. So it, it doesn't imply that we then become indifferent. It's just that we create more space within ourselves mm-hmm. to hold it. Yeah. Uh, spacious. So equanimity is a really important balance to compassion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's kind of spaciousness, I was going to say, that comes yeah. with uh, practice, meditative yeah. practice, yeah. which really affects every other part of your life and certainly directly with what we're talking about here. We were, Joseph, I think when I talked to you and said, hey, can we do something? And uh, I had something in mind, uh, and it was around aging, which we qualify for. Not you, Noah, but then I thought of... (laughs) Everyone is aging. Yes, everyone. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm talking about, you know, quantitative... Aging, aging. (laughs) But uh, You are further ahead than I am, but it's still something on my mind. Yeah, well, okay, and that's what I thought was important, that whatever we do anything around this subject, death and dying through Ramdas stuff that we put out and so on, that and he himself, he's, it's not a matter of waiting until you're in the hospice bed. It is a matter of right. you're 20 years old or whatever, and you have a realization that there is a path and there is a way to free oneself. I think that that's a good time to start investigating, you know, what we're talking about now. But Noah, you said you kick it off in terms of because you had a yeah. certain idea. Well, yeah, my my problem is 20 year olds don't think that way. Right. Yeah. Uh, and that's something that's sort of catching up with me these days. Uh, you know, the fact that when I was in my youth, uh, you know, yeah, you, know, you do what you do what you want because you think you're going to live forever. Uh, even though you know you're not going to live forever, but you feel like you're going to live forever. Uh, and so having to make the, the shift from my body is an amusement park to my body is a temple. Uh, that is, that is catching up with me. And so just how, how do we deal with that shift in identity that happens as we age from youthful arrogance, right? To middle age practicality to hopefully elderly wisdom at some point in our lives. <laughs> yeah, I like that trajectory. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how how do we how do we walk that path? Well, what comes to mind in the moment is that fundamentally it has to do with a deepening insight into the process of change. Mm. And change is happening all the time at whatever age. But especially perhaps when we're at the younger end (laughs) of the journey, change is still happening. It's happening just as fast then as it is when we're older. But because there's a lot of energy and engagement, the world may be more seductive then so that people are not actually 
investigating the change that's going on even then. So one way I think that would really open people at, at whatever age is to highlight that awareness. And one of the phrases I came across recently in the suttas, the Buddha used a phrase that was translated, obviously, in Eng into English. Um, it's kind of an unusual phrase. We don't, it's not a phrase we would particularly use very often. And that's why it kind of jumped out at me as being very vivid. And it's been very helpful. So in one of the discourses, the Buddha was talking about the nature of change of things always becoming otherwise. And I love that phrase, becoming otherwise. That's happening all the time. That from moment to moment, things are becoming otherwise. And so it becomes a very pointed reminder to just observe that. So, for example, and I use it a lot now. That, oh, yeah. that, that's become part of my practice. So I might be going for a walk. And then, I don't know, but my knee starts to hurt a little bit or a little something in my back. And one of the first thoughts that comes now, oh, becoming otherwise. You know, because it highlights the fact that there is no security in the idea that things should stay the same. Okay, I'm young now, and it's even though we don't consciously think it, but as you said, there's the feeling, well, I'm going to just be healthy forever. <laughs> yeah. and, and we know that's not true, but still there's that inner feeling. But if people, even at a young age, we're just observing the very mundane, simple examples of things always becoming otherwise. It's such a vivid reminder uh, of the insubstantiality, of the basic unreliability of phenomena because they're continually becoming otherwise. Right? So I think highlighting the truth of impermanence in a way that people could drop from the ordinary conceptual understanding of it. Because this is not an esoteric truth that everything <laughs> changes. You know, everybody would agree, yeah, of course everything changes, but we're not actually actively perceiving it. We, we kind of know it up here, but we're not in the moment-to-moment -moment experience of it. And of course, meditation brings us to that experience. But for, for younger people, I think some way of vividly reminding them in the midst of their engagement with the world and you know, everything they're doing, oh, things becoming otherwise, moment after their, their feelings, their emotions, you know, what they may be feeling in the body. Um, I think that that would be the doorway. Um, it's basically the whole aging process. It's just um, the outcome of the truth of change. <laughs> you know? and it's basically changing in one direction. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. 
Uh, Can't get it going back the other way. Huh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Until we go from death to rebirth, and then we kind of get another another shot at it all again. <laughs> uh, I, uh, well, I, we've talked about this, Joseph, before. Yeah, well, but, I, oh, go ahead. There was just one other thought came to mind. Yeah. And and this is this is a classical Buddhist reflection that um, the Buddha suggested we actually do every day, uh, and it's a powerful one and very simple and appropriate at any age, because the, the truth of it becomes so evident. So the reflection is: what has the nature to grow old will grow old. So. That's not hard to grasp. What has the nature to become ill will become ill. What has the nature to die will die. And I am not exempt. And it's that tagline, which for me is really powerful. Because even though we know we're not exempt, we know it intellectually, Exactly. There's a deep, <laughs> a deep deluded feeling that we are, or at least that we should be. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Any version of that is off. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so just actually bringing that into one's daily practice, just a few minutes, you know, reminding oneself of that and with with the emphasis, and I am not exempt. That, I think, could really awaken, even in young people, just the understanding, yeah, this is, this is the Dharma. This is the nature of things. Uh, so that also is a powerful, I think, a powerful way for people to <clears throat> really inhabit this understanding. Mm. It's a big... Um, Signboard, you are not exempt. Exactly. Your... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What? Um, yeah. So I, uh, Ram Dass used to always quote, I think Don Juan saying, "Keep death at the right, forefront right, of your mind." Yeah. yeah. Sometimes I get a little too <laughs> focused on that, though. Sometimes I feel like. Yeah, I, I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die. Why? Why do I have to think about dying so much? <laughs> how How do I temper that? Yeah. How do I find some balance there? Well, you know, with all of these, I mean, the beauty and the really the magnificence of the Dharma is that it illuminates the vast range of experiences in our bodies and minds and lots of different uh, practices to do based on that richness of um, the riches of our human experience. Mm. And so I think it's to balance so. Okay, so there's the reflection on death. And it may be that there is 
there may be some ways of reflecting on it that don't feel heavy. You know, so for me, for example, the one I just mentioned about I am not exempt. <laughs> for me, right embedded in that wisdom is a little humor when I see my own mind thinking I am exempt. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's just a reminder of how things actually are, but it doesn't feel heavy. It feels, oh, yeah, this, that's right. <laughs> But I'm holding, I'm holding it with that sense of, uh, you could say lightness or just openness. But aside from finding the right expression for that kind of reflection, it's also then cultivating other reflections, other, other practices that balance that out. So the practice of loving kindness, you know, or the practice of compassion, or a beautiful practice which we don't teach that much or even speak about that much, uh, but is completely delightful, is the practice and the meditation on empathetic joy. You know, the Pali word is mudita. Mudita. Where we take joy in the happiness of others. Mm. And, you know, and the, the, the... the classical phrase when you're doing it as a formal practice, you know, you think of somebody who's enjoying success or well-being, and the thought is, may your well-being increase, your may your, your success not leave you. Just empathetic joy in their happiness. So when I was doing one time, I was in Burma for a few months at the monastery. And at that time, I was doing the practice of all four of the Brahma Viharas that, you know, the loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. So I was devoting time to doing intensive practice with each of them. And when I started doing the the mudita, the empathetic joy, the image or the feeling state that came to mind, this is like eating ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) it was such a delightful light Mm. joyous um, mind state and emotion so that can balance out you know so sometimes we do that and not only that not only is it a balance for maybe some of the other kind of reflections it's a it's a wonderful antidote for the comparing mind and that'll just one little story so one of the times I, I went to Burma to practice and a good friend had gone there some years before and had ordained as a monk so he had been in the monastery for a few years already when I went in for a shorter period of time and he was just he was radiant you know and and when I first went there, well, yeah, I'm I'm here struggling with my mind or whatever. And this guy's just you know <laughs> floating, <laughs> and I could just see my you know a little little inner grumpiness. But I saw that pretty quickly, and so, so pretty quickly I started doing the mudita 
I started doing this practice, and it was amazing. To within a few minutes of starting to do that practice, all of that comparing mind completely fell away, mm. and it was just I was feeling happy for him, mm. you know. And so it's just such a beautiful way of transforming our own, you know, judging, comparing, whatever. Yeah into a beautiful feeling. Mm. So it, it has it has a great power. And to me, this is the beauty of the donor. There are just so many different ways of cultivating beautiful states of mind. Mm. Oh, that's so great. I mean, I met you, as I was going to say a little bit ago, in Bodh Gaya at the uh, Burma Vihara. And... Uh, we were sitting with Goenka, a large group of people, meditative practice, and a woman in front of me went into an automatic kundalini type of experience, which was very ecstatic. And she was, she was emitting these sounds, which everybody else around there could not for a minute go. Uh, maybe there were some people. Danny Goldman. I remember, I remember that. <laughs> oh, really? You do? Yeah. Holy yeah. God. It's a long time. It's amazing. And then know, suddenly, it was, <laughs> yeah, it was yeah. something. And then suddenly booming from Goenka, who those of you yeah. don't know, is a large yeah. man with a booming voice. And he just said one word, Anitya. <laughs> and... She crashed out of that thing so quickly, but yeah, it was yeah. an incredible example of what we have, you have been explaining and what we've been just talking about mm. in, in terms of uh, constant change and permanence and, mm. and, and, and yeah. the reality of that and how we absolutely aren't jiving with that some of the time at the very least and other right. times a lot. And yeah. uh, that was a big I'll never forget that. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, it was just extraordinary. So yeah. we're kind of at the end of a uh, of the uh, allotted time that our corporate sponsors, which we don't have, uh, <laughs> went quickly. <laughs> yeah, felt like this was a ten minute conversation. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. But we're talking about you know. I always love to get you to do, especially at the end, uh, a little mm -hmm. practice uh, we can sure. do. And, you know, you're talking about, I don't know if, if there's a, a, a mudita practice, but mm -hmm. uh, it, it was sure. inspiring to hear. So if you would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's just take a, a comfortable but, you know, meditative posture one way or another. Um, and might close, close the eyes and, and start with just taking a few breaths and getting embodied. You know, so we're really settled into our bodies. And to start with, you might think of some friend who is just really doing well in their lives, in whatever way. You know, maybe enjoying really great health or professional success or, you know, in a beautiful relationship. Let's see if you can... Now think of someone um, for whom things are going really well at the moment. And when you settle on someone, you know, in that situation, to whatever extent, uh, holding the image of them in your mind, and the image may 
either be steady or flash in or out, but really keeping them in mind one way or another and working with the image often helps. And then repeating some phrase, as I suggested, and you, you can also create your own phrase, you know, in the same vein. May your happiness continue. May your happiness increase. May your well-being increase and become stronger. well-being and your happiness stay with you. Really feeling the meaning of the words, feeling, you know, embodying this wish for them, for their happiness to continue. Delighting in their happiness. Maybe thinking of the ways that they are enjoying, you know, well-being in their lives. So it gets quite specific. Your happiness deepened. May your happiness touch everyone around you. Again, holding them in mind, holding the image of them in mind. Letting your heart open to appreciate their well-being. To take delight in it. Maybe just open the mind, the heart to all beings everywhere who are in good circumstances. May everyone's happiness increase. May everyone's well being become strong. May all beings everywhere be at peace.
When you're ready, you can open your eyes, connect. And Noah and Raghu, may your well-being ever increase. Thank you. <laughs> you're muted, Raghu. Oh, sorry, everybody. And you too, Joseph. <laughs> yeah. And it does remind me of uh, Ram Das. He's talked so much about just doing these kinds of practices, in particular this uh, sympathetic joy practice, loving kindness practice. You are reaching outside of yourself. It's what His Holiness called selfish compassion. Because in that act, you are actually doing something for yourself, not just the other person. So yeah. it's a, an amazing feeling when you did that. I had that mm-hmm. that feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So great. Thank you so much, Joseph. Yeah, Spending you're welcome. It's so, always us. a pleasure connecting with both of you. Uh, yeah. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Noah, for, for being here. Uh, as far thank as books go, me. yes. Um, don't forget, Joseph wrote the Bible on mindfulness, in my opinion, uh, that is uh, available. It's just called Mindfulness, Joseph Goldstein. So we're going to put a link there because it's an important book, I think really helpful for people. And also uh, I w- the story I told, which was from a book that we mentioned his name, Danny Goldman, who's part of our family. And he did this book, Why We Meditate, Danny and uh, Tsokni Rinpoche. That's mm-hmm. a wonderful book. We'll put a link up there too. Uh, mm-hmm. Got so much great information. So, um, Joseph, I don't know what we need to do to grab you. And uh, Sharon told me, no, he's not going anywhere, you know, to come to a retreat or something, but you're going to get bugged. There's this no. Now we have <laughs> one on fun. the East Coast, by the way, in North uh-huh. Carolina. It ain't that far. So, uh-huh. Uh, yeah. But uh, so happy to be with you and uh, everybody. This is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. We shall see you again next week.